0: It's been a while since we've talked about the war in Ukraine. You remember the war in Ukraine? It's been grinding on for 22 months, with tens of thousands of deaths on both sides. In all that time, with all that loss, the battle lines have barely budged. But last weekend, Russia tried to dig a sledgehammer to that stalemate. I asked Slate's Fred Kaplan, what happened? <music>
1: Well, Russia, which, you know, usually launches a few rockets at a time, or maybe a dozen is a lot. They launched something like 180 rockets all at once against cities all over Ukraine.
2: Tonight, Russia ups its aerial assault, sending missiles raining down on Ukraine. Bombs dropped like never before. Absolutely, these were targeted. I mean, it was the biggest attack ever.
1: The barrage comes as Ukrainian
0: officials are urgently pleading for more air defense systems from their Western allies.
1: Stephanie People are saying it was the biggest
0: attack since counting began.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think if somebody had guessed the day before whether Russia even had that many missiles ready to go, they might have doubted it. Dozens were reportedly killed in this attack.
0: Afterward, Ukraine fired its own rockets into Russian territory as retaliation. They also killed civilians. It seemed to me like a new kind of escalation after two years of day-to-day battle on the ground. One security expert said it wasn't just the sheer number of missiles Russia fired that surprised them. It was the way those missiles seemed to elude any defense— with some of them flying in circles before looping around to their targets. I was struck that even a Ukrainian defense expert called it cleverly constructed. It was like there was a sort of grudging respect for
1: how effective this attack had been. Do you share that assessment? Well, it it was coordinated, and it was coordinated across the entire stretch of the Russia-Ukraine border. In other words, it indicates that Russia still has some kind of integrated command system. Were you surprised? Yeah, I think here's the thing that, that we're beginning to realize. Russia has a lot more reserves than anybody thought, not just in weapons, but in manpower. It is a military that has begun to learn some lessons of its failures in the past and has made adjustments, which means they could, they could last longer than, than had been calculated. Today on the show,
0: Russia's Ukraine war is entering a new phase, but will the West come up with the cash to hold Putin off? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
2: Dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: I want to get into Washington, but before we do that, I want to just talk about the state of play in Ukraine right now. What would you say the state of play
1: is? The state of play is still stalemate, but it more intense and more highly destructive levels. What do you mean by that? Well, if you're looking at how much territory has been captured, that has been almost unchanged for the last nine months. And it continues to be essentially unchanged. I mean, Ukraine might take over a town or Russia might take over a town, but it's kind of net zero. On the other hand, Ukraine has started to step out of it's former limits it's no longer it, it used to kind of hold back on attacking targets inside russia now there are actual you know rocket attacks on you know like the like attack on bulgograd this this was clearly stuff fired from ukraine yeah this attack on bulgograd this happened right after the blitz on ukraine yeah it was in response it was in other words okay uh we are going to show you that we still know how to play asymmetrical warfare you fire 150 missiles at cities well we go after something in russia this is stepping up the the battle this is this is what we're not respecting the you're not respecting our borders we're not respecting yours anymore either
0: does that concern you because you you mentioned how you know attacks within russia raises a this- question of hold it. (laughs) You know, when you're attacking inside Russia, it becomes something potentially bigger, potentially drawing in more
1: combatants. Right. Well, I mean, these red lines are, are kind of subtle to the point of questioning whether they're meaningful. I mean, the U.S. has always said U.S. weapons will not be used for that purpose, which was one reason why for quite a long time, Biden, President Biden, was reluctant to ship uh, long-range missiles to Ukraine. They didn't want to give them a missile from which they could hit Russian targets. Well, he let up on that idea, but still said, don't use this to attack targets in Russia. Then it became, well, if you want to use your own weapons or other countries' weapons to attack targets in Russia, well, that's okay. Just don't use ours. Does that mean, really, that, that if, say, they... They used one of our weapons to attack targets in Russia that, I don't know, that Putin would start attacking targets inside NATO? I don't think so. I think a lot of these red lines, which people feared at the beginning of the war, have sort of dissolved or, or turned very pink anyway. And, and it could be Putin is realizing that he can just hang on. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you right,
0: what you're saying is that this new phase of the war, if we want to call it that is this realization that Russia has a lot more people and maybe a little more coordination and maybe a few more missiles than we thought, which um, is alarming. But also that Ukraine is stepping up its sort of guerrilla tactics a little bit, tactics inside Russia, tactics that let Russia know, hey, we have people on the inside. And that's interesting to me because those approaches, they don't seem symmetrically matched. And I wonder what you think that means about what happens now.
1: In any war that is just settled into a sort of stalemate, each side is looking for advantages. And if there are no advantages in the head-to-head conflict, then then you look for asymmetrical advantages. For Ukraine, it's loosening some of the rules of engagement. With Russia, it's it's relying on a, a reserves of, of, of manpower or missiles that is much larger than had been thought. I mean, it's kind of... We really haven't seen since World War I the use of people, of, of, of new recruits, as cannon fodder uh, to the degree... that that we've seen with Putin. I mean, 350,000 soldiers lost uh, in a war that's not quite two years old. Uh, And most of those, most of those just in the last six months, they they go through almost no training. Uh, They're just sort of rushed into the lines to soak up uh, Ukrainian ammunition, which uh, whose supply is is being depleted, that's what cannon fodder means. It's it's just soaking up the cannon fire of the other side. And uh, I mean, look, in ten years of the Afghan war, the Soviet Union lost I think it was fifteen thousand soldiers, and, and that helped lead to the crumbling of the Soviet regime. Right. So to lose 350,000 people in not quite two years is is just extraordinary. There's been almost nothing like it ever. Hmm. You know, you've been saying for
0: a while that this war in Ukraine is at a stalemate. But I wonder how you reacted when you saw that back in November, the Ukrainian army commander in chief said in an interview with The Economist that the war had settled into a stalemate. Yeah. It seems to me to be one thing when you, Fred Kaplan, say it, and another <laughs> yeah. when the army's commander in chief says it.
1: Well, I mean, it was a rather impolitique for him to say, and Zel- President Zelensky was very upset about it. He he denied it. He then had his uh, army go attack a, a, a Russian ship in, in you know near Crimea to say that see it's not a, it's not a stalemate, and it was then that he rushed uh to make a tour of 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 the west uh, to say that look we're we're still doing well but we need we need your weapons uh but still it, it was it was an alarming thing for the chief of staff of the army to say after the break ukraine has been asking the west
0: for cash but president volodymyr zelensky might not get it With Russia content to throw seemingly limitless numbers of troops into battle, Ukraine says it needs aid to fight back. Before the holidays, President Zelensky came to Washington, hat in hand, hoping to secure the passage of a bill that would send $60 billion of aid his way. It would be a renewal of full support. He had to settle for a measly $250 million weapons package. The Department of Defense says that's the end of it, unless Congress gets its act together. But House Republicans say they are not going to pass anything bigger without strict border regulations attached. And Senate Democrats, they say that's a
1: non-starter. Biden is in kind of a spot. If he gives in to the Republicans on every part of this bill, he might not. It might not get passed in the Senate. And yet the Republicans are at least for the moment demanding that he give in on everything. There were some negotiations before the holiday recess, but they they didn't go anywhere. So we'll see what happens now. There are a lot of Republicans who, if you just took away 2024 politics and everything else, are very much in favor of continuing to aid Ukraine. If it was just a one-time bill, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning with no media coverage, that bill would win. But we should say the Republican approach here... It's tracking with U.S. public
0: opinion in general. Like Gallup polling from November shows 41% of Americans think we're doing too much to help Ukraine. Last June, that number was 29%. Mm-hmm. Why do you think but Americans are cooling here?
1: It's still a majority. It's still a majority are are in favor of, of aiding Ukraine. It is not as large a majority as before. That's true. I think part of it is that at the beginning of this war, there was a— Ukraine performed so well and Russia performed so poorly that it looked like Russia, you know, you, you know there, were, there were people saying that Ukraine, you know, next week they're going to be on the Russian border. They're going to be storming the Kremlin. I mean, you know, some of the claims were, were, were wild. As Ukraine went back on the offensive and Russia went to the defensive, things changed. If somebody is looking at what's going on and looking at these remarks about stalemate and they think, oh, Jesus, is this going to go on for the next 10 years? Are, is Biden and any future president going to keep coming back for another $60 billion, another $60 billion, another every three months, and this is going to go on for the rest of my life? Let's bring this to an end.
0: Well, Congress is back in session January 8th, and they're going to come back to this issue, I'm sure. What what's happening in the meantime in Ukraine? Like, what's going to happen without the money going out? Like, is time already run out here?
1: I think they're fine for the next few months. But yeah, beyond that, if the U.S. doesn't, uh, doesn't renew its package, uh, they're going to be in serious trouble. They're going to have a severe shortage of ammunition, of missiles, of air defense missiles, which is a big thing. Probably by the spring, they're going to be in deep trouble. It
0: feels like, however, these negotiations play out over the next few weeks over Ukraine aid, Republicans have successfully shifted the Overton window when it comes to Ukraine. Like even President Biden seems to be changing the way he talks about the war. In December, when Zelensky was visiting, Biden gave a press conference and he talked about, you know, the U.S. is going to support Ukraine, but really that Ukraine has had an enormous victory already, Putin has failed, which seems to be like, we're coming to our conclusion here, people, yeah. versus like, we're in the fight. Let's do it.
1: Well, there have also been, I think some of the rhetoric has changed for from as long as it takes to as long as we can. And then there has been some background source news stories which talk about, look, what we're, The strategy is going to be to help Ukraine continue to stave off any additional Russian advances, which is very different from helping Ukraine, you know, rack up another successful counteroffensive.
0: Feels a little bit like Ukraine's in
1: hospice care. Well, it's what it is, it's that what it will take to enable Ukraine to push the Russians out of Ukraine entirely by force. Is way beyond what anybody is going to give them. Uh, that's just not going to happen. And so then you uh, you you say, well, what can we do? We can keep them. We can keep Russia from taking over any more country and any more territory in Ukraine. And that becomes a very different thing. Well, and you've pointed out the fact that
0: you know Putin's got every reason to hold tight here. Because if Trump wins the 2024 election, he might be able to not give in on anything.
1: No, that's right. That's right. There have been several former aides to Trump who said that had he won the election in 2020, he was going to pull out of NATO. And I don't see anything that, that Trump has said lately that, that uh, calls that into question for what he'll do in 2024. And Ukraine isn't even part of NATO. Trump respects Putin. I think Trump wants to restore relations with Russia. Uh look, I'm not it is widely viewed and feared all throughout Europe that if that if Trump gets back in, uh the US alliances with with Europe in general are are basically severed. So if you're Anthony Blinken, like Secretary of State, are you like
0: oh, gosh, I got like six to nine months to hammer out what's happening in Ukraine just to make sure we're all a little safer.
1: But hammering out, I mean, what really needs to happen is, unless you just want to give up, is uh, that the aid has to be restored. There has to be a deal between Biden, the White House, and Congress. Uh, Otherwise, it could collapse. And, you know, here's the thing. I'm usually not the kind of guy who talks in these sorts of terms, but, you know, I don't generally believe in domino theories and things like that. But if it is shown that after all this effort and trouble and time and money, the U.S. just kind of caves in because it's getting too hard, and Putin wins in a meaningful way, this sends a message to China about what they might be able to get away with in Taiwan. It also sends the same message to our allies in Asia, especially Japan and South Korea, which might say, Jesus, we are we're, we can't really rely on the United States. We'd better build our own nuclear arsenal as a deterrent, which will then provoke a, a real nuclear arms race with China and North Korea might also build more nuclear weapons. In the Middle East, it might tell foes and friends that the U.S. deterrent really isn't as severe or as certain as some of the leaders of the U.S. say. It's going to make the world, which is already a fairly anarchic place, much more freewheeling and anarchic and not in our favor at all. You're saying the U.S. is showing its backside a little bit. It's showing that you know there there used to be this phrase "politics stops at the water's edge." what does that mean? Well, it means that 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 we're united on foreign policy. That you know, all the, the squabbles between parties at the water's edge—in other words, once you get involved in foreign relations—that that all ends. That the United States is a is a solidly united country. Again, that that's never really been true, uh, but. It's been truer than it it is now. Uh, Politics don't stop at the the water's edge at all. And uh, that situation can be exploited quite easily.
0: So this Ukraine funding mess, it's really about way more than Ukraine.
1: Oh, yeah. Ukraine is about way more than Ukraine at this point and has been for quite a while.
0: Fred Kaplan, I'm super grateful for your time and your insight. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks. Anytime.
0: Fred Kaplan is Slate's War Stories correspondent. He's also the author of The Bomb. That's the show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time.